Hello, this Saturday morning, you're listening to The Core Report Weekend Edition with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. On this show, you'll be hearing conversations typically featured in our YouTube video series, Connecting the Dots. In these conversations, I speak to experts from various industries who help connect the dots on topics and issues that aren't usually accessible to most of us. But be sure, by the end of it, you would have gained a deeper understanding of something interesting or significant in the industrial or technology space as I did putting it together. If you prefer video, we've also included the YouTube link in the description. Other than that, we hope you truly enjoy the show. This is the weekend edition of The Code Report. Can India play a much bigger role in the global trade ecosystem? Can it build further on its exports base? And how much further, particularly in what we call merchandise exports or physical exports? And finally, all this, can it lead to more jobs and how many of these jobs over time? To discuss this, I'm joined today by Arvind Panagriya, Professor of Economics and the Jagdish Bhagwati Professor of Indian Political Economy at Columbia University. Mr. Panagriya was also the first vice chairman of the Niti Aayog, Government of India, in the rank of a cabinet minister. He's also served as India's G20 Sherpa, and he was a former chief economist of the Asian Development Bank and on the faculty of the Department of Economics at the University of Maryland at College Park. He's also worked in the World Bank, IMF, and holds a PhD degree in economics from Princeton University. He's also authored more than 15 books, and this book, India, the Emerging Giant, 2008, was listed as a top pick of 2008 by The Economist. Mr. Panagre, thank you so much for joining me uh, today on the Core Report Weekend Edition. So let me pose a couple of broader questions to you from the India context and the global situation. So firstly, in India, we are seeing merchandise exports now fall. It fell 22% year on year to about $33 billion in June. This is uh, contracting consistently for five months now. This has been, of course, driven partly by or maybe largely by a decline in commodity prices. So that's affecting us, but that's also helping us elsewhere because input costs for companies are going down, margins are better, consumers are benefiting and so on. But I am coming back to trade with our own role in trade seemingly going down because we are obviously uh, the value of exports is going down. Where do we stand as India? But in the context of maybe a larger global landscape of trade at this point, given two or three things, and then I'll stop uh, with this long question. One is, of course, the geopolitical situation in a broad sense. That's the, let's say, from an India point of view, again, India, China, and the United States. And second is, of course, the Ukraine-Russia war and the impact it's had on so many things. So that's really the foundation for what I would like you to touch upon and start perhaps with the trade landscape as you see it in a global context and then on to India. Thank you, Mr. Govindaraj. My pleasure to be with you. Okay, so let me begin with the question. On the falling exports, let me say that I look at these figures in a much longer-term context. Monthly figures can see a decline. And in this case, of course, you have yourself provided a good explanation that the commodity prices have been declining and that would impact the value of exports as also value of imports. Most likely, you know, what we would also observe is that the value of imports would be correspondingly declining as well. To me, it is the longer term prospects that worry the most or that concern me the most. Now, where we stand, you know, how do I see this unfold? First of all, 
a common concern, of course, is expressed about what is going on geopolitically and more generally on the global markets. That part I have always maintained is, to me, not a big source of worry for the following reason. I come to geopolitics in a minute, but first, what has been the kind of very recent history? If I look at these longer-term trends, pre-COVID peak of global total exports was in 2018. And that was a figure of about $19 trillion total global exports, that is to the merchandise. Then there was $6 trillion of services exports again. So altogether, $25 trillion pre-COVID peak in the year 2018. Now look at year 2022. By year 2022, which, you know, is coming out of COVID and all in the merchandise exports have bumped up to about $25 trillion from $19 trillion, and services exports have bumped up from $6 trillion to $7 trillion. So now the global marketplace total exports is about $32 trillion compared with what was about $25 trillion. So it is a large economy. It is a large market. Compare that to India's GDP, for example, it's about $3.4 trillion now in the year 22-23. And so no matter how one likes to kind of look at the geopolitics, etc., the one fact that, is, that remains to me is that the global marketplace, even if it were to decline by some 5-10% in the years to come, it will remain a very large marketplace. So what really matters is how large a slice of that very large pie India is able to get for itself. Currently, it's very small. In the exports, we are about 1.8% our share in the global exports. On import side, we are about 2.5%, little over 2.5%. That's for merchandise. Services, we are about 4% of the total global exports. So enormous scope, you know, compare that to the China, which is about 13 to 14% for merchandise exports. Services, China is larger than us, but not much larger. So that is where we stand. I think, you know, enormous scope. Now, if, you know, we can talk about the, uh, Ukraine, Russia, if you wish, and, and, and also in uh, US-China. Yeah, so we'll come to Ukraine, Russia in a little bit. So what you're saying is that the overall trade pie, that's the global trade pie, has grown. But it seems to me that shares have again shifted around. So India perhaps does not have the same share it even had in 2018. Would that be correct? Uh, no, I think we're about where we were. So it's 1.8. We have not exceeded 1.8. And that's roughly where we stand currently for the year 2022. Right. So India has not grown in this pie, but has maintained the same share. So why is that? I mean, broadly. Well, this is where I think, you know, our internal policies are still not fully conducive to rapid growth in exports. I think we are decent, but not conducive to rapid growth. What is missing is, one, you know, 2018, uh, we had raised a lot of the, the custom duties, and many of these even include many inputs, you know, that go into the production of the final products and so forth. So that naturally works towards reducing trade, meaning although these are duties on imports, and you might think that you know, reduction in imports is not going to impact exports, but it doesn't work that way. At the end of the day, when you try to expand exports, resources flow out of somewhere, and that somewhere is also the export industries. And therefore, even though you're restricting imports, it also means restricting the exports. So there's one factor at work. The second is the exchange rate. I still think that our exchange rate rupee is a bit overvalued. Some correction has happened, but we need a bit more correction. 
And to me, I think the exchange rate is absolutely critical. You look at any country which has done well on exports, you know, expanding rapidly at paces of 15%, 18% a year on a sustained basis. These are countries which keep the domestic currency very competitive. And we have consistently kind of a bit overvalued the rupee. So that is the other major factor, I think. You know, and the third, of course, you know, we need to do more free trade agreements. Uh, that is for looking ahead. Yeah, and, and you've talked about this in the past as well. I think you've said basically that we should roll back tariffs because after many, many years since we started in 91, uh, we've actually now increased the level of protection, as you pointed out. You also said that, you know, one should strike more free trade deals with major economies and trade blocks and also cut back on anti-dumping. So anyway, anti-dumping is something that is maybe more situational. But are you also linking our, let's say, static share in world trade with our increase in tariffs? Or protectionism? Well, look, the level of the share, right, the level itself as opposed to how it changes over time is also a function of the economy size. We are still $3.4 trillion economy. China is four times us. So, you know, remember that even with the same exports to GDP ratio for India, if GDP were to become four times, then our exports would also be at the same exports to GDP ratio be four times of what they are. And that, of course, means 1.8 times 4. Uh, it's not quite 8%, but it's close to about 7%. So the economic size also matters for the level. But still, you know, even if we do that correction, we are well below China's. And there, of course, the old impact of the policies we followed starting from the 1950s, that's still remaining because one of my favorite theme is that uh, we have not reoriented, restructured the economy towards the factor which is most abundant in our country, which is labor. I mean, China was very quick in the 80s and by mid-90s to reorient its entire economy from these heavy industry, capital-intensive industries towards the labor-intensive industries. We have not successfully done that. We were so slow, you know, as late as mid-2000s, meaning 2005-06, we had still knocked, knocked down completely the small-scale industries reservation, which is where the labor-intensive industries were sitting. Then we have not done the labor laws still, you know, although 2019 we passed all the four codes, but we have not implemented them. They have not been notified yet. So as a result, if you look at our economic structure, it is heavily capital intensive or skilled labor intensive. What are the successful industries? You know, you've got petroleum refining, you've got machinery industry, you've got chemical industry, you've got pharmaceutical industry, you've got IT industry, you've got finance industry, all either skilled labor intensive or capital intensive. We are not making use of the big factor of production you got, which is labor. That is the reason we are not as export-oriented as China was or has been. So you're saying that there is no real linkage between our ability to grow or not grow in the global trade pie and the level of import tariffs that we have or the level of protection that we've now imposed on ourselves. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. Of course, the, the tariffs do matter. Does that make us more uncompetitive? Does that make us less of a player in the international market is my question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, it's very simple. Just think of the extreme. Suppose you were to raise the tariffs to a level where your imports are zero. There'll be no reason to export. There'll be absolutely no reason to export. That is what we did for about four or five decades. Pre-1991. I mean, if you go to 1970, imports are 4% of the GDP. Exports were therefore even less than 4% of the GDP. So, of course, the level of protection makes a big, huge difference. 
Right. So that's, I think that's a, that's a very good illustration for a student like me. So let me come to the point about the labor-linked industries and growth there. Again, this is an issue that you've talked about in the past as well. I think the question is really where we are today. So if I may quote an article that appeared in The Economist, and it talks about the manufacturing delusion. And essentially, it argues that you know countries like India and China, the industry share of economic output has been roughly the same or rather is roughly the same today as it was about three decades ago. That's one. Second is, even in the West, it was about uh, 19% in 1997. It's down to about 16% today. We're talking about manufacturing. So if that's the case, I mean, that's assuming you agree with this proposition, is manufacturing or labor-linked manufacturing the way out at this point of time as we speak today? Yeah, you know, so there is a lot of this skepticism. First of all, of course, if you look at the Western economies, they're highly capital-abundant economies. They have no reason to be doing, I mean, they're not even doing as much manufacturing as China or South Korea or, or Taiwan are doing. But for them to do labor-intensive manufacturing process, neither here nor there. So their manufacturing share being low at the level where we are, of course, tells me nothing at all. I have to compare myself to the labor-abundant economies. I can look at where Korea was, you know, let's say 1980 or 1970, or I can look at where Taiwan was, or I can look at where Singapore was at one point or where China has been in the last three, four decades. So if I compare with that, I am well below their levels in my share of manufacturing in the GDP. And I return to the theme that in the end, it all has to do with the fact that we started, as did China, of course, initially in the 1950s with very heavy industry kind of approach to development. China got out of it after then shopping came along. We started in 91, but we did open up the industries and so growth did happen a lot faster than it had happened before. But we did not restructure the economy because a lot of the other regulations remained in place. I mean, you can't be in the industries in which genuinely your factor endowments are not pushing you towards comparative advantage with a set of distortions that had existed from the past, which has left you there. So you're not going to become a gigantic exporter in those products, but your scope really remains still with such a large labor force. But, you know, the thing is that in the psyche of everybody, whether I look at the businessmen in India, whether I look at the policymakers in India, whether I look at intellectuals in India, they all want to do the high-tech stuff. They all want to do high-tech stuff, you know. Industries like the clothing industry, the footwear industry, the furniture industry, the everyday light manufacturers, the kitchenware that we use, they are not on at least our leadership's minds. But in the end, you know, if you look at the Chinese exports from the 80s and 90s, that is what they exported. Even the electronics industry, which is also relatively more labor-intensive, arrived in more like, you know, late 1990s. And then it grows very rapidly, you know, in the 2000s, China really explodes. 2000s, basically China was earning every year more to export than now, than India's level of exports. You know, India's total exports often would fall short of the increasing annual increase in exports of China. But the structure was very important. So I remember visiting a toaster factory in Shenzhen uh, in the early 2000s. I mean, and obviously they made so many toasters that they actually had a percentage of global toaster production and supplying to all the big OEMs, including Philips, Black & Decker and so on at that time. Is that something that's replicable today is, is really my question, Mr. Panagred. You see, this is a question we repeatedly say, or we use the expression like the ship has sailed or the bus has left or something, you know. <laughs> but ship resails all the time. And the bus, another bus leaves, the, the, you know, the, 
No, let me put it this way. Even in the Shenzhen example I quoted, I remember meeting the entrepreneur who ran it was classically a US returned Chinese American who had come back to China and had set this up. So in India, there is no shortage of entrepreneurship. There are many entrepreneurs, maybe let's say a good part of them are attracted to tech industries, but there are many who are not. And as we can see, for example, right now in initial public offers on the stock exchanges, we are seeing fairly traditional companies who are raising money and growing and so on. But these people are not getting into these industries that you speak of. I completely agree with you. Actually, you know, Mr. Goyran, I'll tell you, whenever I went to speak to CII, occasionally I will sort of, you know, uh, tease them, ask them, you know, who is Harish Auja? Nobody would know who is Harish Auja. Harish Auja is the largest single employer in India, you know, about employing about 120,000 people. Probably Reliance Total employs more. But he is the largest exporter, Shahi exports, of clothing from India. Nobody knows who is Arisha Uta, or most of them, you know. And when I only, what I have to tell them is that his son is married with uh, Sonam Kapoor. Then they quickly connect. Uh, but, you know, there is something intellectual about in the businessmen also that somehow they, I sometimes actually uh, refer to this as the Brahminical attitude of our businessmen too. Machines will do refineries, uh, will do IT industry, but you know, stitching clothes is not for us, making shoes is not for us, something of that sort. But you've got to change that. But there is a, a policy aspect to that also. I mean, I don't deny that for sure because that's a battle I've been fighting. That first, that small scale industry reservation took so long. I mean, believe it or not, the last 20 items on that reservation list went out under Prime Minister Modi. So that's how long it took us to completely get rid of small-scale industry reservation, which were all labor-intensive, by the way. They were all labor-intensive. So we really did a great job of hardwiring our businessmen to keep away from all labor-intensive industries. Then labor laws still are a problem. Land is still a problem. Now, you know, these are industries, by the way, that operate on very small margins, very highly competitive to survive for Bangladesh, a clothing industry, the global marketplace. There's no joke. They really have to work. So small things matter. Electricity prices, if they are overly high. I mean, I talked to Arish Rauda, he says he would never dream of locating himself in tier one city. He'll always go to tier two or tier three cities because that's where you can do the wages at which you are competitive with the global marketplace. Shai Export supplies to all the major brand names in clothing industry. But why is it that we have only one Arish Rauda? <laughs> Another 20 Arish Raudas in the country. Uh, and I don't see that, I fear. So it's a combination also of the history, the way we hardwired everybody, and the policy. So I'll come to policy. So uh, we've said that, yes, India can have a larger share in the global trade market. We can do that by really injecting more labor into labor-intensive industries, for which, as you say, we still have a lot of scope, including in those industries that you pointed out. So let's touch upon the last part, which is the policy. Now, some of the biggest policy boosts right now are happening via productivity-linked incentives, for example, in a variety of industries. But again, as far as I know, none of the ones that you've spoken of. And these PLIs are giving, let's say, electric vehicle manufacturing companies or soon to be maybe pharmaceuticals, air conditioning companies like LG, companies like Samsung for devices, they've already started getting PLIs and they're benefiting from it because the production has started and they're able to supply in India. But again, none of these PLIs at this point at least seem to be touching the industries that you speak of. Yes, I think there's a fact. Assuming that's, that's a key policy input. To me, that's not the key policy. I think, you know, to me, fix the labor law. I mean, look, 
PLI is, is basically a second best that when the manufacturer comes in, I got this disability, I got that disability, it's a value, you know, we are not going to correct the disability, but we'll give you crutches and then those crutches are the PLI. But I think we ought to really remove the disabilities themselves. And that is, you know, labor laws, obviously, but land, land prices have to be fixed, meaning not fixed, but series of laws, which are a problem, you know, why is land so expensive? And if anybody is trying to assemble even a 50 acres worth of land piece, contiguous pieces of land together, it's a pretty serious challenge for the industry. And this all goes back to a number of things, you know, first land titles are not well defined. Also, very importantly, you know, usually these industries want to locate on the periphery of a particular city. And the periphery of the city is agricultural land. There has to be conversion of that land into other uses. And often it's a state level issue. States often are very reluctant to do the conversion because the power of this is it resides with the revenue department of the state government and revenue departments don't want to let go. That power should be transferred to the urban ministry. You know, urban ministry has an interest in urbanization. So they will be more willing to, you know, do the conversion. But there are a number of these land restrictions that keep Indian at the land in India incredibly expensive. We use, by the way, you know, uh, on agriculture, we compared to the overall global average as a proportion of total land area, we are easily three times of the global average. So a lot of our land is in agriculture, actually, and a lot of it is very inefficient agriculture because your half of your farms are less than half hectare. So what are they going to produce? You know, it can't give living to even a family of five. They have to do other things to make ends meet. This is all links to me. Because in the end, why are they doing these small little farms? Because they haven't got good job opportunities in the industry and services. If we create good job opportunities in the industry and services, which is through these labor-intensive manufacturing activities, they would themselves want to move. I mean, children of the farmers, most of them, want to be in the city. They don't want to be doing the farming, you know, and particularly when the farm is only half hectare or less than one hectare, they would rather do something else. So we started out by talking about international trade and India's potential role in it. But that in some ways presumes that we want to have a big role in international trade and that's an important way out for economic growth. Some, of course, argue against that, saying that that is not as critical and exports are not necessarily the way out of wherever we are or the path to where we want to go. Your comments on that? <laughs> that we are a totally knowledge-proof society. You see, that's a problem. But we are not comment-proof. We comment uh, on everything, regardless of our knowledge of history. How did we get to where we are today? The exports to GDP ratio in 1991 was 9% or 7%. I do not even 9. I'm overstating. And the growth that happened, you think that happened without exports? I mean, our fastest growth is about from 2003 to today. In real dollars, uh, my calculations are growth has been about 8% for the two decades. 2003 to 2022. And just look at what is happening to exports and what is happening to imports during that period. Why don't they look at it? I mean, we used to be about 0.7% or 0.8% in terms of our share in the global economy. So it has more than doubled actually to 1.8%. And this is happening while GDP is rising. At peak, actually, the export GDP ratio had rushed about 25%. That was from 7% to today, it's more like 19, 20%. So, you think we did it without exports? This is pure lack of knowledge of history. 
anyway, I just wanted to place that there. This does come up uh, fairly frequently. So the last point and something I mentioned in the beginning, I talked about the Russia-Ukraine war. So not the war in itself, but really your views on where you see the global trade and economy landscape or the economy and trade landscape in whichever order you would like to put it at this point and looking at the rest of 2023. I think we are incredibly well situated. So I'm very upbeat going forward. In the next two or three decades, I expect us to be growing 8% or more in real dollars. Finally, I think we'll see whether it pans out or not. But I'm very optimistic that finally this whole China plus one is coming together in favor of India. You know, now the buzz is all around. Perceptions have changed. And, you know, they, even a lot of the Western newspapers and magazines, Economist, Time magazine, this, that, which had been so incredibly negative for the last eight or nine years, they're not explaining why they are changing. But you can see that in all their write-ups, I'm beginning to see the change. So the buzz is very different today from what it was even two years ago. And you also see that translating into Apple coming in and a lot of the other manufacturers are coming in. Also, I'm very glad, you know, the Prime Minister has made a big push on the microchip industry, the semiconductors and all. That is uh, also somewhere we ought to be. Uh, you know, there's no question our factor endowments, our, this is also requires uh, a fair bit of labor. It all varies which particular component of that industry we are doing. There are certain parts of that industry in which we ought to be big players. So I think this is coming together. The politics very much is in our favor because I don't see this reconciliation happening between the US and China. And as long as that remains, and China clearly remains very much, you know, determined to become first both a regional power, which is the big 500-pound gorilla in Asia, but also in about 10 years' time, it has the ambition to become number one country. And that, of course, simply means that India is the major country which stands in the way. And the United States sees that and the Europeans see that. And so we geopolitically are incredibly well situated. We also have a really very vigilant government in place very much guarding the interests of India, speaking for the interests of India, and a stable government, very willing to make the changes that need to be made. So I think the situation from the Indian perspective I see is actually more positive than it has ever been, probably. And the larger question, I mean, just before we close, is that how are you seeing overall global trade and trade flow trends for the rest of the year or the next couple of years at least? I mean, apart from like a war in Russia, Ukraine, which of course has a lot of destabilizing effect, which may have been controlled to some extent now, uh, do you see things being somewhat conducive to at least a certain level of growth at a global level? I do not see this slowing down. Everybody was predicting that after COVID that somehow, you know, the global economy, you cannot be in it. It's very uncertain, this, that, and the other. What happened? I mean, all these supply chain disruptions we're talking about, you know, even the U.S.-China trade is still booming. In spite of all the press to the negative, if you look at the figures. So, look, the exporters are a very powerful force. They are determined people. They are, I mean, exporters are basically in their own industries the most successful people. They are the most successful and therefore they find ways to get their goods out to wherever they need to go. I mean, look at the oil trade itself, you know, all the embargoes, etc., etc. In the end, what happened? The Russian oil is still flowing everywhere. Thanks to Indian carriers or some Indian carriers. Well, many others. It's not just Indians, but the policy itself. I mean, you know, the Europeans have also designed their policies in such a way that once it comes through India, having been refined into India, then they can buy it. Their own laws also are allowing this. 
likewise americans where they needed very critical minerals from china they never became subject to or even russia actually you know there are some critical minerals they get from russia they never became subject of the embargo so policy side as well as the determination of the entrepreneurs particularly the export oriented entrepreneurs will continue you know a lot of tensions in the trading system i understand that even multilateral trading system wto the appellate body is in some stress and all but at the end of the day if i look at the trade figures i conclude that for us for india the real issue is how well do we continue with our own policy reforms there is no reason to worry on account of the marketplace itself that's a large marketplace whether it shrinks a little or whether it grows a little is of far less consequence it is the total size of that market that matters the most for us right so the marketplace is there uh, indian entrepreneurial spirit is of course there uh, and maybe a few nudges here and there in the policy fund should wrap it up neatly on that uh, note thank you so much mr panagriya for joining me my pleasure mr goindraj This was the core report with me Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you. including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector write to us at feedback@thecore.in at thank you for listening